Welcome to the St. Emelins podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Cowley. And these are our blog posts in the review for October 2022. It's conference season. Simon, I know you've been away at a couple of conferences, USEM and the Archem Academic Scientific Conference. A good time had by all, lots learned. Yeah, lots learned and actually really nice to be back seeing people face to face at both of these conferences, actually. So Archem over in Belfast, which I've got to say, I've been to Belfast many times, I think is an absolutely fantastic city. And in fact, the whole of Northern Ireland, I've, I've been around a lot of Northern Ireland, and it's great. Fantastic welcome, um, really nice venue, lovely people, some great talks and some really key moments, actually. Uh, Matt Reed was talking about the development of the Emerging Group and all the work that he's done around collapses um, out of Scotland. That was brilliant. Um, the James Lind Alliance uh, priorities for emergency medicine research were released. That's really interesting going forward. And then one of the things I've tried to do as CPD director is to bring lots of different special interest groups into the program. So we had really good presentations on EDI and the Women in Emergency Medicine Special Interest Group did a rather interesting session on issues around women in emergency medicine, which was really good, actually. And we see this as a new term for a new president. It's a welcome to Adrian Boyle of Cambridge and a goodbye and thank you to Catherine Henderson from London, who's done a huge amount over the last three years. A really tricky time to be president of a Royal College, I think, but she's navigated it with a graceful charm, always stable, steady, that voice we needed looking after us and supporting us up at the highest levels of government. Absolutely. I'm sure it wasn't the presidency that she expected, but um, she did incredibly well, as have many other people. But I, I really would single her out as being exceptional. And then you had the USAM conference over in Berlin. Not the first time you and I have been to a conference in Berlin. I didn't make it this time. But again, I guess that was lovely to be back face to face. And we'll be talking a bit about one of the talks you gave over there. Lots to see, lots to do, lots to learn. Absolutely. I really, really do like the USAM conference. I think in the past, in the UK, certainly, we've been probably a bit ridiculous about always looking to other Anglophone nations, so Canada, America, Australia, as the places where we should look to for our emergency medicine expertise. But actually, there's huge amounts of it on the, on the continent. And even though we don't, might not share the same first language, it's absolutely incredibly useful to learn from uh, our colleagues in Europe. And in fact, this is a very accessible conference. If anybody's worried about language, it's hugely accessible for somebody who has English um, as a primary language. Also fantastic to see Jim Connolly, um, another UK emergency physician who's now president of USAM. So we've got um, obviously Adrian Boyle, um, president of Arkem. We've got Jim, who's now president of USAM. And of course, we've got Fionn Davies, who either is or is about to be president of ISEM. So on to the blog post for October. There's lots to talk about, not least your talk from you, Sam, about the top 10 trauma papers, which is kind of an annual tradition now for you, but always hugely informative. So we'll come to that in a minute. But let's start with the first post of the month. And this was about batching or not to batch. And this is one of those things that comes to fore, particularly at the moment where we're thinking about how we manage flow in the emergency department. This is Stefan's post. He's an expert in this sort of stuff, has been the clinical director in Yeovil for many years and has done lots of forward thinking. And if you look at their target achievement, they've led the country often in that. And that's not just down to luck or the size of the hospital, that's down to leadership and some of those innovative things that he has been doing with his team. What did you think about this, Simon? Oh, it was really interesting, actually. It took me a while to get my head around what they were talking about, and then even longer to read the original paper, which is very long. So well done, Stefan, for sort of abbreviating it for us. But essentially what this looks at is, is the behaviour of clinicians. 
So we've done lots of stuff around systems about how we can move flow um, better through hospitals and how we can reduce overcrowding. Not sure we've been very successful. But one of the things that's not been terribly well studied is actually behaviours of the emergency physicians themselves. People have looked at sort of bed management and stuff, but behaviour and this concept of batching. And what they mean by batching is that you would do lots of things at the same time. You sort of wander around, you see a few patients, and then you might go and sit down and then do all the notes together. And then you might refer on and refer to all the referrals at the same time. That's what I do quite a lot of. I do tend to batch things because I've got a reasonable memory and I find it a bit more efficient than jumping up and down, finding a seat, finding a computer, going backwards and forwards all the time, trying to get things done. One of the things about batching, though, is it does mean that actually you probably delay some of the things that you do. So say you've got three people who you need to refer. Well, if you batch them, you might wait about an hour to do that before you can sit down and get a phone and do your bleeping or whatever it is, whatever your hospital does, which means that the, some of those patients could have been referred earlier. And what they did is they looked at this study and they found really sort of interesting stuff. So batching takes place more often at the end of a shift, probably because we don't want to hand people over, which is a good thing. Handovers are always dangerous. But also that batching actually slows flow down and increases overcrowding. The paradox is, though, it increases the efficiency of the emergency of clinicians. So if you can get your head around that, because not everybody gets admitted. If you are an emergency physician who does batching, you will see more patients, you will be more productive, you will do more things, but you'll have more patients in the department and your crowding will be worse. Now that's really interesting. I don't know what the answer to that is in terms of what we should do, but it's really interesting to see what an effect the behaviour of clinicians has on flow and performance and productivity and how somebody who would be looking at an emergency department might say, well, actually, I think you should be behaving differently. You should be doing things in a different way because it's going to make you more productive, but it actually might make things worse. There's lots of different thoughts, aren't there, about how we can make the flow better without seemingly any investment, because there's not a lot of investment coming. Those who are outside the UK, you may have heard that we're about to hit what may be only another spending cut spree to try and get down a deficit. So the health service is not going to get a bunch of money, and yet we're going to have more patients and more work to do. So it's trying to make more with less, which is always very, very difficult. There are all sorts of different things that are tried, I think, and it is about being efficient, but efficiency is also quite tiring. And I think we do also build into our workday natural breaks where we let our brain settle and perhaps batching can help with that because it gives you that opportunity to sit and think often that can also mean that you've got people nagging about what's happening next what are we doing next i know there's also this idea of a continuous flow model and that's been trialed down and there's a lot on twitter recently about one of the hospitals in the southwest which has really said look I, we don't really mind if you've got beds available we're going to keep sending you patients who need admission and seeing how that drives behavior the so-called boarding, which has been around for years and years as a concept. But all these things are being tried. And of course, those who are really keen say it's great and it works really well. And those who think it's a bit too much. But we can't keep having all of the patients in the ED at the same time, can we? That's not safe. No, it's, it's nuts. There's a post this morning, I think, saying if there's more patients in your emergency department than there are beds in your hospital, you have a problem. And the fact that somebody could actually come out and say that really scares me, actually, but I can believe it to be true. The other thing I would say about this batching thing, and we've got to be mindful of you, yourself and I, in this, it's much easier to do this when you're a senior clinician, because you've usually got a special senior clinician space that you can go to. There's often like a, a working office that a consultant can sit in, whereas the juniors tend to get kicked off chairs and I need to use this computer and there's competition for using space and stuff like that, particularly when you move to an electronic health record model, which we have just recently done. So it's quite interesting. It's not in this paper, but my observation is that it's actually easier for some people to do batching than it is for others. 
And of course, this is down to see not seniority so much as experience. The more you see, the more you have those shortcuts that you can use in your thinking. That makes this sort of thing a bit easier. But we cannot expect of our more junior colleagues the same as we expect for senior colleagues. And it, that's even the same as I see us expecting the same of people who've just qualified as consultants and just started their jobs as we expect of people who've been doing it for 15 years. That's just not fair either. We've got to be able to make sure that people see enough to get these thought processes going and and learn how to think and learn how to make decisions. We do a lot about decision making, don't we? We've got to try and support people because that is the hardest part of the job, isn't it? Making a decision and making stuff happen. A lot of the medicine is relatively straightforward at times, but it's the making it happen and having the brain space to make sure that that one patient that you see that you're just not sure about, you've got time to think about as well without the pressure to rush into a, a decision about what happens next. Alongside this, Simon, you did a post about decisions, oscillations and damping. And this was a post that you've written personally. I guess this must come down to something you've been thinking a lot about over the last few months, about how you make decisions and how you you move between different decisions. What was it that led you to write this? Oh, well, I'm going to change some of the details so that it's not identifiable. It is a pre-hospital job. One of the things about pre-hospital work, as you know, is that you see patients often at a very early stage in their uh, their clinical journey when actually change in the patient is quite profound. So we went out to a patient who'd been involved in an RTC. It was one of those ones where you walk up to this patient, you go, that patient has got a significant head injury. They're going to need an RSI. You've got to go off and confirm that. You're going to have more information. You're going to do your checks and stuff. But that initial gestalt feeling of walking into the patient and thinking this is a significant head injury. Quite a complex scene. Couldn't do things where we were. We had to do a little bit of a move to get somewhere else. So there was a bit of a time delay. But we sort of made a decision that this was our proposed plan. Had to move the casualty to a slightly different location for safety issues. Got everything ready. And then it was, okay. well, actually, the patient's woken up a bit. They're looking a bit better now. So we don't need to do that. So we'll pack all the kids away. Fine. Okay. We'll pack all the kids away. And then we decide to get going. And then they start to deteriorate again. And then they get worse. And by the time you arrive in hospital, they've actually got to the stage where they do need an RSI. And it was one of those situations where at any one point in this journey, I don't think anybody made a bad decision about what to do with this patient. But it felt like we were doing this and then we we're doing that and then we we're doing this and then we we're doing that and then we we're doing this as the patient journey progressed. And I've seen lots and lots of examples of this over a period of time. And I'm sure, again, some of our junior doctors will be very frustrated when they call the boss in to say, this patient needs this procedure. Boss walks in and they're either completely fine or they should have had it, clearly had it half an hour ago. And that's what patients do. They change. The point was, though, that this oscillation between making one decision and making the other is to some degree predictable. But there are times when it can cause utter decision paralysis and just people can't make a decision at all because they can't decide whether I'm going to go to theatre with this trauma patient or am I going to go to CT? And what they end up doing is neither and just staying in recess. It's often a lot easier to not make a decision or to even contemplate two different decisions rather than fixing on one and going with it. Yeah, and so in the post, I've put a a number of different suggestions there, which are designed to firstly identify that you're in an oscillatory pattern. So you're flipping your decision. So, okay, I am now doing this. What is going to do? What are the key pieces of information that are going to move me in one way or the other? What are the associated risks or benefits with those? And in particular, setting yourself things like time points. So in five minutes, if things have not got better, we're going to proceed with this. If in five minutes time, patients got worse, we're definitely going to do it. If they got better, you know, that kind of thing, but explicitly thinking of them in your head and then explicitly sharing them with your team can get you out of that decision indecision paralysis state, which is so bad for patients. For a lot of our time critical patients, just hanging around in the resource room, waiting for something to happen 
just doesn't get better. It's the opposite of don't just do something, stand there, isn't it? There are times for us where you do have to do something. And, and the other quote, obviously, is a little less conversation and a little more action, please. And you do need to to make things happen is is the key to our job. And, and yes, you can find sometimes you're just flicking between, oh, should we, shouldn't we, should we, shouldn't we? And sometimes you've just got to make a decision, even if it turns out that wasn't the right decision or even the best decision. Making a decision is sometimes better than no decision at all. The worst decision is the decision of indecision. And I'm, I'm going to make a decision now that we're going to move on and talk about the top trauma papers. And I think that we'll spend a bit of time on this, Simon, because this is a lot of evidence-based medicine. Some of this we've covered already in the blog. Some of it bears repetition because it's important stuff. But this is evidence-based medicine, the thing that we all really enjoy and like, but that often takes us huge amounts of time to make happen. I'm not sure if that knowledge translation gap is as big as it was maybe 10 years ago, but it's certainly not into months and perhaps it's multiple years. So you did a load of papers here. So I mean, we won't go through them all, but do you want to pick out a couple of highlights of the papers that you talked about in Berlin and how the listeners and and we may go about using those in our daily practice? Trying to pick out ones which are either going to change my practice or make me go, ooh, that's interesting. That's basically the marker about what I decide to put in these talks. And so first one was um, a paper looking at um, the size of chest strains to put in for haemothoraces. It was always put the biggest one that you could get in, 40 French chest strain for any haemothorax. And um, we've talked about it a lot on the blog in the past because there's quite a lot of animal models that show smaller drains are fine. They just work the same. And in fact, there now is a, a reasonably decent size randomized controlled trial published in trauma and acute care surgery looking at 14 French pigtail catheters versus a 24 French for relatively small haemothoraces, so moderate haemothoraces. And in fact, there was no difference in failure rates defined by needing another procedure. I think it was 11% versus 13%. There's a big trend, isn't there? You know, pretty much everything in pneumothorax, haemothorax, we're going smaller and more conservative. Is that something you're seeing in practice as well? It's something I'm seeing in practice until sometimes, dare I say, you talk to a cardiothoracic surgeon. We do have cardiothoracic surgeons at my hospital and and often they'll be involved with some of these decisions. And I'm not sure that this sort of emergency medicine resuscitation evidence has quite got into their literature brains yet, because the idea of not putting in the massive tube does seem to be not quite what they want to do. And I've suggested it gently on a couple of occasions and we've still ended up with the big thing. It's difficult because those are the doctors going to be looking after the patient. And I always want to have us engaged together. And I can't force my opinion on somebody if they're then going to look after the patient themselves. That's not fair. It's a bit like me choosing an antibiotic without talking to the inpatient team and saying, I'm going to start this. What do you think? I don't think we're there yet. Not by any means. There was a really interesting Twitter thread, actually, from Karim Brohi in London about chest drains, where he dispelled a lot of the sort of the dogma around how these things work and, and use of suction and all sorts, which if you can find, it's worth seeking out. Uh, have you managed to convince your cardiothoracic surgeons about a smaller chest drain yet? Well, they sometimes come down to find a smaller one in. I think that's called a fait accompli, isn't it? The idea would be that it's better for patients. It's easier to put in. There's less chance of side effects and the outcome is the same. So a 14 French pigtail, and you do need to see if you can find those in your hospital because they're not that easy to find sometimes, may well be just as good as the big thing that ATLS taught us and has taught us for the last 35 years. At the moment, my go-to is still probably a 24, but that's a lot better than a 40. And I've had chest strains. They're unpleasant. They hurt. Well, it's a big hole, isn't it? Uh, next paper was looking at uh, the Delphi study, actually, which is you'd say, OK, well, that's not the, the highest level of evidence in the world, speaking to someone who's done quite a few Delphi studies, but looking at the extrication of patients following uh, motor vehicle collisions. And this is something which 
dogma, if you want to talk about dogma, has been around for a long time. This idea that somebody has been involved in a road traffic accident, they might have an unstable cervical column fracture, which has not yet hit the cord. And if you move them by more than a millimetre, they're going to pith themselves and die of or get paraplegia or whatever. And, you know, we've been pretty sceptical about this for a while. But the evidence base has been building slowly, but we've never got to the stage where you're not going to do massive randomised control trials of this. So Delphi is a method of getting consensus. And this is a very sensible piece of work which gives consensus from a bunch of experts, including people who've done the primary research in the area, to say that actually we can be a lot more conservative in the management of these patients than we did before. And the really important thing about this paper, the one thing which people have got to take away is, if you are entrapped in a motor vehicle, properly entrapped in a motor vehicle, you can't get out, then you're also very commonly seriously injured and the clock is ticking on your injuries. Any time that you spend doing spinal precautions, particularly a very extensive spinal precautions, is at the expense of the time ticking against your potentially life-threatening critical injury. And that balance has previously swung horribly in the way of minimizing spinal movement at the expense of people bleeding to death. So what this paper does, it says basically several things, go read the, the guidelines, but if the patient can get out of their own, let them get out on their own. All patients with evidence of injury should be considered time dependent and their entrapment time should be minimized. There are balances and there are decisions to be made, complex decisions sometimes, to get people out in order that they get the required interventions that they need. And ideally, you shouldn't be doing those in a trapped vehicle. You should be getting the patient out to do their time critical interventions. Lots of other things, but the other one I'd take away is actually, if you are somebody who's entrapped in a vehicle and somebody's cutting you out, it's a pretty unpleasant experience. So do make sure we look after the patient's psychological health as well, if they're in a fit state to uh, to hear and understand what's going on. The Fire Brigade are very keen to use those jaws of life at times, aren't they? They do enjoy cutting a roof off. And when you're in the pre-hospital environment, it's sometimes hard to say, look, it's OK, we'll just let them get out. And they do look at you funny, like, are you about to kill somebody? This is safe. And actually, for me, if you're going to have a major spinal injury, I think the major distraction to your column happens at the time of injury. And that idea that you may just make it worse, I think, is so vanishingly rare that you need to balance the harm and benefit of the approach you're taking and get them out of the car, get them warm, get them into a hospital and look after them there rather than sitting and waiting for for the firemen to take the roof off, even though they do enjoy it. So it's probably worth a second just to mention a Delphi study. What what is a Delphi study? How does that work? So Delphi study is where you have a question which can't be answered necessarily by traditional research methods. And it's a way of gaining consensus between experts. So you take a bunch of experts, you say, look, here's a difficult problem. What do you think we should do about it? They create a series of statements. Those statements are then fed back to everybody else in the group, say, rank these, which is the best statement, which which do you agree with, which do you don't agree with? People do that. And then what happens is you then send it back again with the results of what everybody else thought. You can see your own answer. You can see everybody else's answer and you score the statements again. And the idea behind Delphi is if the, if you are a true expert, if you definitely know what you're doing and you're absolutely on song and message, you don't change your opinion. You stick in that space. But actually, if it's an area where you're not that much of an expert and you've got less expertise, you actually shift. This is the principle of Delphi. What that means is that eventually, after three or four rounds of doing this, the statements that remain end up with a score which reflects how certain a body of experts are. And it's done anonymously, so you don't have the sort of the most powerful or most influential person in the room. They can't sway the the opinions of everybody else. So it's it's quite a clever little way. Um, I think it was originally designed to look at the future. So it's how to predict the future. 
using um, Delphi studies by the Rand Corporation. But yeah, no, nice technique, entirely appropriate for this question. And that's more than the, the old days when a group of worthies used to sit around with a couple of uh, glasses of gin and tonic and decide what they thought. It actually sounds like it's a considered way of doing that, but uh, coming out with much better advice than perhaps we did in the past. What would you go for next? Sex and TXA. Okay. So we all know TXA is an effective drug, what we do here, but not necessarily all over the world. I do actually believe it has a role in the management of trauma. So you had the CRASH-2 trials, which looked at bleeding patients below the clavicles, and you had the CRASH-3 trials, which looked at um, potentially bleeding patients above the clavicles, so the head and the body. And what the, this is a secondary analysis, so always going to be a bit cautious about those sort of things. And it's essentially a study in two parts. The first part is they looked um, at the CRASH-2 and CRASH-3 data and said, well, look, is the size of effect, the benefit that we saw for TXA in those populations, was it any different between men and women? And the answer is no. So the same benefit, if you're a woman with this pattern of injury, and uh, the benefit that you potentially get from TXA is exactly the same as if you were a man. That was the first part of the study. So on the basis of that, you'd say, OK, well, surely we're prescribing it in equal rates between men and women then, because if it works just as well in both, why don't we give it to just as both? Well, actually, the data would suggest we don't. So they went to the TARN database UK-based database of major trauma, and showed that of people with significant injury, so high ISSs, the percentage of women who got TXA was 7.6%, and the percentage of men got it was 16.8%. That's the ISS9 patients and above. That looks like we've got a major issue with prescribing between men and women. And we've seen this in lots of other things, in ACS, in pain relief, in the diagnosis of ACS in women, all sorts of things. So this, at face value, is not a surprise. There are some differences. So women tend to be older. They live longer, so they're more likely to have falls as they get older. Uh, There's more low energy falls in the women's group within the TARN database. So there's some compounding factors there. But even if you look at sort of relatively high energy trauma in younger women, the difference isn't as great, but there is still a difference. The bottom line is there appears to be a difference in the prescribing behaviours of clinicians between men and women with major trauma. So this is one to go away and think about, all right, next patient you see, considering might be giving TXA, female, you should probably be thinking pretty hard about why am I not giving it, giving it, giving it, not giving it. Definitely very, very strong signal here that we can do a lot better. These innate biases are fascinating, aren't they? How we view people from the end of the bed and how we try and go against those biases. And where, I mean, where have they come from? Where did this start? Do, did this start in medical school? Did this start earlier than that? Do we just assume that women don't get into bad trauma because, you know, they're not as careless as men? I mean, what could it possibly be? I don't know. I mean, it's a good example of where this is a quantitative study. So it's looking at the numbers and it tells us what is going on. It doesn't tell us why it's going on. That's a much more complicated question and often requires a qualitative approach. And I'd be really interested to see how that comes about. I can purport about this. People have different attitudes about how women perceive and express pain and discomfort. They may have different um, pain thresholds, although I think that's been debunked to a large extent. But even if it's it's been debunked, people may have perceptions that these are the facts. I think it's probably a lot to do with, as you say, the way that we've been developed, not just in medicine, but our differential innate biases between in this case, sex, but we know that similar things happen with skin colour and other aspects uh, of of characteristics, including all the protected characteristics. So just be thoughtful, I think. Everybody needs to be seen in the same light and you need to be objective about the injuries they have. 
I think we're still going to be battling this for a few years, though, Simon. I don't know that this will be easily solved, I'm afraid to say, but we can highlight it. And I think if you're aware of those biases, like all our biases, isn't it, then you can do something about it. And we're not calling it out. We're not saying it's deliberate. What we're saying is, is these things happen. Be aware of it in yourself and then question yourself. Are you doing the right thing for your patients when you go and see them? Or is there something else just in your mind that's making that decision making a little bit trickier or different? Other papers, Simon, from the top 10? Um, I'll just leave you with one more, actually, just very quickly. And it was one of those papers that maybe just go, oh, really? And it's about the operative versus non-operative management of unstable chest wall injuries. Because in my trauma centre, in Verchester Major Trauma Centre, we're quite keen on fixing chests. Um, so if somebody comes in with a flail chest, you know, significant ventilatory compromise because of a number of fractured ribs, then we're quite keen to fix them. But I was surprised when I read a paper in JAMA Surgery that the evidence base for this is actually quite small. And they've actually published the largest RCT to date, which is actually only 207 patients. And their findings are interesting. So they found in their cohort of patients that the only ones who benefited were the ones who were already ventilated. Now, there is some bias in there, some circularity, which I won't go into now. But the point is that a lot of our practice is being driven by observational data, anecdote, experience, as opposed to high quality data. Now, there is a trial being done at the moment, the ORIF trial, which will hopefully answer this in the UK, another RCT. But it's really interesting for me just, just to see how what seemed like a good idea has become almost standard practice in many, many centres without a particularly strong evidence base. For us, there is a bit of it happening at Southampton and we have got a nice rib fracture pathway, actually, which we use now, which gets these patients in front of a cardiothoracic surgeon who can make that decision. Much easier when they're in your own building rather than you're in somewhere else in the region. But the other thing that I've really realised is that we shouldn't just discount rib fractures as a minor injury. I think the morbidity and, and perhaps even sometimes mortality is a lot greater than we used to say. Do you remember? We used to do the whole thing of, oh, well, we won't do an x-ray because if you fractured a rib, we don't do anything about it. Well, now we're seeing all these rib fractures on CT scans. I mean, there's all sorts we're seeing on CT scans, but... Uh, and it's clear that there's a bunch of patients who have these injuries and may well get into trouble if we don't do something about them. And that could just be as straightforward as decent analgesia, making sure that the patient can breathe deeply, making sure they can cough. And of course, the rib fixation is just the other end of that scale of care. But for me, rib fractures are probably the one of the biggest things I've come to realise that can affect patients. And we really shouldn't just say, oh, don't worry, it's just a couple of rib fractures. And your point is very well made. That One of my major criticisms of that study was that the principal outcome was ventilator-free days. Now, it's nice to have fewer ventilator-free days, but that's not the same as looking at morbidity, mortality, and long-term outcomes for patients. We need better evidence out here. Um, but yeah, a rib fracture pathway, I think everybody should be using those now, which does indeed prioritise analgesia, including blocks, so erectus spinal blocks, serratus anterior blocks, as well for, for good quality pain relief, not just in ED, but as they go onto the wards as well. And that's one of those things where sometimes I think we do things because we can and some of the blocks that we've learned and, and do, you find out, well, I'm just doing it because it, it's fun. But actually to have that in your armory is a really, really good procedure to be able to do for your patient in the recess room because often if they go to the ward well we can all picture the patient can't we they're perhaps a bit older they've had a fall from standing they've got a minor head injury with some bit of blood in the brain and they've fractured a couple of ribs as well and everyone's really reluctant to give them painkillers because hey if you give morphine to old people their blood pressure drops and isn't that awful you know that's probably not true and we can just do better and we need to start that if we start that at the front door or, or even the door just inside the front door then 
that gets our colleagues thinking about it. And these pathways, we've got a great one. It means that people have got it in their brain and it's becoming more of a focus than just a couple of rib fractures. We've one more post left for the month, Simon, and that's from Stefan again, who was talking about how we can help support African emergency care development. Now, this is something that I've seen a huge increase in over the last five years or so. And this is a post written by Emma Gold. And this is just a bit about how the global phenomenon that is emergency medicine, because everybody has emergencies everywhere, uh, how those of us who are able to live in those environments that are slightly more uh, affluent and better off, how we can help educate and deliver emergency care in other areas and help those clinicians who are really doing their best in some really tricky circumstances to care for people when they are trying to die from whatever illness and injury they have got. And we've seen some really inspirational people come from the African Federation of Emergency Medicine in the various different countries in Africa. This post is well worth a read, and I will ask people to just spend a little bit of time doing it. It talks about what's known as SuperDel, which is support a delegate, so SuperDel for short. And this is the African Federation of Emergency Medicine's sponsorship program where you can fully or part support an African delegate to attend the sort of conferences which many of us might take for granted or maybe not. But we certainly have many more opportunities to travel, to meet other people and think about all the people that you've met over your training who just by being in the room with other inspirational people, with other ideas, you've managed to make change when you go back to your to your own place. And that's what this is about. So please have a look. Emma Gold trained with us in Manchester. She's fantastic. Really great um, little post there. Not a long read. And there is links on there where you can indeed offer some financial support to an African delegate. So Simon, that is October. It is colder in the UK. The dark nights are drawing in. It's now dark when you leave to go to work and often dark when you get home from work, although sometimes that was the case anyway. As ever, thank you so much for listening to the St. Emelins podcast. Hope you've enjoyed it and found some of it useful and interesting. Please do like and subscribe and pass on what you know from St. Emelins to your colleagues and friends and get them to have a listen too. We'd really appreciate it. Take care, everyone.